0: Today is the first Sunday in Advent and that means that at Redeemer we are continuing our series through Luke's Gospel. Uh, Today in uh, Luke chapter 9, I'm glad some of you got that joke, Uh, Luke chapter 9. We are, by the way, going to break from our regularly scheduled programming in about two weeks. We're going to take time uh, to consider together the glory of the incarnation and the humility of Christ, Uh, but that will be in a few weeks. We have uh, a few more studies in Luke's Gospel yet to do. Uh, today, Lord willing, when the mic turns on, uh, we'll be completing Luke chapter 9. We're reading today Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51, reading through verse 62. You can find that on page 868, if you picked up a Bible on the way in. Page 868, Luke chapter 9, beginning in 51, and reading to verse 62. God's Word together. Let's join together in prayer and seek His blessing upon it. O glorious Lord, we pray that You would cause us to see Jesus. We pray that as we come to Your Word, You would give us eyes to see Him and hearts to behold Him, feet to follow Him as Your disciples. Make us followers of You, O Lord. Give us joy and rejoicing and the cross that you call us to bear with yourself as we follow you as your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We we'll hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 9 beginning in verse 51. When the days drew near and up he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he said, But the people did not receive him But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that the cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves To Christ in union with his death, he wrote. Thus it begins. The cross will end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Jesus. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Over the last several weeks, we have seen through Luke's gospel, increasingly the shadow of Calvary is stretching itself over the landscape of Jesus' life. Today we come to a turning point in Luke's narrative. Jesus has set his face, it tells us in verse 51, set his face like Flint to be the suffering Savior, the servant that Isaiah prophesied back in chapter 50. He set his face to go up to Jerusalem, up to the city that kills those prophets who are sent to it, who stones the ones who are sent to it. He set his face to pursue the suffering that will free his people from their sins. He's going up to the place where, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah have just said that Jesus will accomplish his exodus. And now verse 51 speaks of that exodus as a time for him to be taken up. It's ascension language. It is telling us again, and foretelling for the disciples, perhaps for the first time, that Jesus is going to be raised up and taken back to the Father, taken out of this world so that he can come back and, having prepared a place, take us to where he is with the Father himself. And there's glory in that. Glory in setting his, his face to the place that he'll be taken up. There's glory and there's salvation and there's hope for sinners, but all of it has to go through the cross. All of it has to go through the nails And the thorns, all of it has to come through rejection and suffering, and all of it has to go through Jerusalem. And so for the next ten chapters in Luke's narrative, that's what we see. His orderly account begins to follow Jesus on the road. Notice the connection between the two paragraphs that we read today, that Jesus is going up and on the road they are following him, and that's what Luke is going to show us not necessarily always in a straight line, but consistently closer to that place, that Jesus will give himself as a willing sacrifice outside the gates of the city. For The next ten chapters, we're going to be following Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. And as he goes up, his disciples will be with him. They're going up to witness the cross that Christ will bear in their place. They're going up to learn and to feel the weight of their own cross of discipleship. That's what discipleship is, is carrying our cross after Christ, as Bonhoeffer said, as Jesus himself said. In Luke chapter 14, verse 27, he'll say it again. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There is no option. There is no exception. The cross is laid on every Christian. Today we're going to begin to contemplate some of the contours of the cross that is laid on disciples of Christ. Those that would follow with him and walk after him. What does it look like? What does it mean for us to take on our own cross and share in Jesus' suffering? I think it means at least four things for disciples of Jesus. First, to take up our cross means that disciples must be willing to suffer rejection must be willing to suffer rejection. You notice that this is again showing up in Jesus' ministry. This seems to be the pattern of Jesus' ministry. You can remember all the way back to chapter 4 when Jesus began his public ministry. He preached his first public sermon in his hometown of Nazareth, and what happened? He was rejected in spectacular fashion. They drug him to the edge of the town. They attempted to throw him off the cliff, and it's not as Uh, as extreme here in Samaria, but it happens again. We're told that the people did not receive him. Now, there are uh, some reasons for this rejection, perhaps, in Samaria. Perhaps you remember that encounter in John chapter 4, where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman in a Samaritan town, where he's going, it seems, where very few Jews would would want to go, would allow themselves to travel through the Samaritan region. And he meets a woman there, and she is astonished that he talks to her. John tells us in in chapter 4, the woman is amazed. She said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John, the same, actually the same John who wants to call down fire upon all these people, tells us, he adds his, his parenthetical explanation of, Uh, of the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Actually, that feeling went both ways. Samaritans had no dealings with Jews. And in fact, the only thing perhaps that a Samaritan in this day hated more than a Jew was a Jew that was trying to get to Jerusalem. Now, if you set in your minds the geography of the Holy Land, you've got Galilee in the north and Judea in the south, where Jerusalem is, and smack in the middle is the region of Samaria. So just as we read from Deuteronomy chapter 14 today, several times a year, three times a year at least, faithful Jews would make their pilgrimage from the north to the south to go up to Jerusalem and they would have to pass through Samaria. And every time they did that, they were reminding the Samaritans of a religious disagreement. You can read about it. You can read it in the Kings and in the Chronicles, the way that the Israelites in the time of the kings, before the first and the second exile of God's people, they, they began to intermingle with those that were there. They began to flirt with some of the idolatry of the people. Even when the Assyrians came in and took many of them away, they left some Jews there in Samaria, and the Jews that were left began to marry. And they began to mix not only their families, but their religion, just as God had warned them not to do. Uh, that uh, the, uh, the Jews were taken away in the southern kingdom. It was already as good as done. They had abandoned In the north, the worship of Yahweh in favor of some religion that was halfway between Judaism and paganism. Halfway between Jerusalem and Damascus, and there is that that, uh, discussion. In fact, even the woman at the well brings it up to Jesus. That's her main point of contention. Our fathers say that here, Mount Gerizim is where we ought to worship, but you say Jerusalem, and which is it? You see, it's still a raw nerve. And every time a Jew would pass through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, it was reminding them of this religious difference. It was reminding them of their compromising past. As they went up to the true temple, where God had chosen to put his name, where he had put all of his promises, all of the peace of Zion that the people of God longed for. And every time a Jew went through Samaria, they were reminded of their compromising past. And so history records how violence periodically broke out against Jews who were traveling through these towns. So much so that by now, most Jews did not travel through these towns, actually. They would add three, maybe four days to their travel. They would go around. They would go across the Jordan and along the edges of the wilderness just to get away from Samaria and come down again into Jerusalem by another route this is what they would do. And we, we see this animosity, but Jesus sends his people ahead of him. His face is set to Jerusalem, and he is taking the most direct route he can, and that means through Samaria. Now, when you've got a lot of people that follow you around, at least 12 and probably many more, it's common courtesy to send somebody ahead and, and make provisions. When you go to a a dinner at a restaurant and you have an enormous crowd, it's good to call ahead. That's what Jesus is doing. He's sending his messengers again, it tells us, before his face. A reminder of what John was sent to do. A reminder of Malachi chapter 3, the Lord promised, I will send my messengers before your face to prepare the way for the Lord who is coming to his temple. That's what Jesus is doing. His face is set to Jerusalem. He sends his messengers before his face to make provisions and it tells us that the people did not receive him. Why? Well, they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. They did not receive him because his approach condemned their false religion. They did not receive him because Jesus' journey to Zion reminded them that long ago they had already rejected God's claim upon the lives of all people. Jesus is going up into Jerusalem to fulfill all that the prophets have said about him and his ministry. And long ago, the Samaritans had already rejected God's right to speak into the world of humanity. And so, of course, they rejected Jesus. It was a reminder of the fact that they had rejected God in the first place. And Jesus was not received. Jesus was rejected. And if you follow Jesus, you will be rejected for the same reasons. You will be rejected because your walk of obedience to God exposes a world that has denied God's right to make demands of humanity. Rejected for reasons that we ought to be rejected for. When When we're down with condemnation on anybody whose sin doesn't look like our sin, we label these things outside the camp, but us, we're just, we're just small sinners, not like those people over there. It's right that we ought to be rejected by uh, by the world in those moments. But far more often, Christians will be rejected because our commitment to Christ exposes the self-indulgent sinfulness of a world that does not want to be told no. Now, last week, I heard the story of a young man. and He was uh, an unbeliever, and unknowingly... Uh, went away and, uh, and went to a very conservative, very Christian college. And suddenly he was surrounded by people who took their discipleship very seriously. And I was told, at least, that, that his, uh, his memory, he's a, a grown man now, but uh, his response in finding himself in that situation was, boy, I've got to step up my game. That is, I've got to do a better job of being moral. I've got to watch the things that I say. I've got to watch the way that I behave around all of these Christians. Now, that wasn't the right response, was it? It was a sort of knee-jerk legalism that hides in all of our hearts that when we're confronted with our own sin, when we see it in relief against righteousness of real discipleship, we realized something about ourselves, and, and nobody was preaching at this young man. Nobody was taking him aside and saying, you know, you ought to be living in a different way. He was simply seeing disciples, taking their discipleship seriously, and he said, I've got to do something different. It wasn't the way he ought to have responded. He ought to have responded in faith and repentance. He ought to have recognized that their disciples, not because they're better than he was, but because they realized how terrible they were because they had come to the Lord to be saved of their sin, and to be made new creations in Christ. That's how he should have responded, but he didn't. And so often, that's the way the world responds to disciples. They are exposed, and they don't like it. And it doesn't matter if you're standing up and preaching a sermon. doesn't matter if you're simply walking in the way that the Lord has called you to and serving your family and living as a in the world and a good member of your church. It doesn't matter. Because so often the world rejects Christians because our discipleship exposes them in their unrighteousness. Not that we think well of ourselves because of these things. but It's just the way that it happens. When Jesus said that you are the light of the world, wasn't it funny that he said the same thing about himself? And he went on to say, John chapter 3, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. No wonder the world rejected Christ. No wonder the world will reject you disciples. I wonder if you face that rejection. I wonder if you've been rejected by your children. By your grown children who that were raised in a household where they were taught the gospel, and they went away and learned to swallow the lies of the world, and now when you talk to them, they just roll their eyes. Oh, here we go again. And they don't want you to pray with them anymore, and they don't want you to give them counsel anymore, and they don't want to get too deep into confrontation going on in their lives, because your commitment to Christ confrontation. I wonder if you've been rejected for Christ. I wonder if you've been rejected by your friends, young people. That it's not that your friends would put their finger on it and say that your discipleship is offensive. It's not that they would go that far. It's not that they would uh, lodge some sort of uh, social media campaign to get you wiped out or anything like that, the sort of cancel culture that we're seeing everywhere. Maybe they wouldn't go that far. They wouldn't say that your discipleship is offensive, but it's just kind of, it's kind of worthless. They don't, want, they, don't, they don't know why you even bother. Why would you listen to that music? Why would you go to those places? Why, why are you so uh, uptight about the language that you use? Why won't you come to that party? Why would you date that guy? He's fine. And they're just not sure, and so it all becomes a, you know, whatever. You're on your own. And they wash their hands of you. Well, that could be much more concrete, couldn't it? spent a lot of time this year thinking about uh, getting a building, perhaps. We'll continue thinking about getting a building. But one of the questions we kept raising as we were thinking about that is, what happens if we get a building and we refuse to open our facilities for something that we don't believe in and don't support, and then the church becomes persona non grata? What happens if we face rejection in our wider culture because of the stand that we take? What happens if, if you fall prey to that cancel culture and the mob descends, What happens if you lose your job because you refuse to teach certain views on history or biology or any other number of of inflammatory Christian ideas then? Rejection can come in many forms, but it will come. So we need to know how Jesus dealt with rejection. What did he do? He suffered it. That's it. There's no magic bullet. There's no... Uh, well, here's the, here's the way you get around it. Here's the way that you can manipulate it. And No, he suffered. He endured it. He was rejected, and he said, okay, I'll be rejected. He didn't deal with it the way that some of his disciples did, at least not in his incarnation, not in the humility of his flesh. There's a day coming, and there is a day of reckoning, and that's what John and James wanted now. Those sons of thunder, they wanted to towards the whole town. Let's call down fire. Maybe you see that that footnote, some of the other manuscripts say, call down fire as Elijah did, sitting on the hilltop in 2 Kings chapter 1. And here come the men, the captain with his 50, come to gather the prophet and take him to the pagan king. And he says, well, if I am a man of God, let fire come down and consume you and your 50. And they're saying, we could do it again. Christ has been maligned, the honor of our Lord has been tarnished, and maybe we can have the day of reckoning now. And what did Jesus do? He endured it. He rebuked his disciples, and he went to another town. And that's it. He absorbed it. He suffered, just like we're called to do. Disciples are called to be willing to suffer rejection. No indignation, no burning self-defense No excuses for getting all pious and all pouty and saying, why does the world treat me like this? Disciples must be willing to suffer rejection, just as Christ did. Now, starting in verse 57, there are three more contours of discipleship, three more demands, we might call them. And they come at us a little more quickly because Jesus is now interacting very uh, very intently with three would-be disciples. Some are volunteers, some he calls, but it all revolves around this question of what does it mean to follow Jesus? And here's what we learn. Secondly, that disciples must be willing to abandon comfort. Disciples must be willing to abandon comfort. Now, verse 57 has a volunteer disciple. Matthew's gospel actually tells us that this man was a scribe. He's a very unlikely follower of Jesus. Of all the people that would respond to the gospel call, nobody thought that the scribes would respond, even though they knew the scriptures so very well. He was an unlikely follower, and yet he responds in the way that we wish all of our unsaved loved ones and our neighbors and our co-workers would respond. Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. You name the place, I'm there. You want to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to Jerusalem. You want to go back to Galilee, I'm going to Galilee. Over into the Gentile territory to proclaim the name of God, I'm there. I want to be wherever it is that you're setting up the center of your ministry so that I can be with you and I can see you reign on earth. That's what he's looking for, isn't it? And Jesus' answer is deflating. Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And it's true. Jesus went about and he slept on borrowed beds. He preached from borrowed boats. He was able to travel around the Judean countryside because there were women of means who ministered to him and to his followers. And they gave of themselves. Jesus was a recipient of ministry when he was here. Do you realize that? He was a recipient of hospitality because Jesus lived his ministry as a wanderer. The son of man, the one to whom all nations and peoples and languages will give obedience, the king who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he says, I have nowhere to lay my head. And it was true. And you can tell from Jesus' answer that what this man got wrong about discipleship is that he was thinking of it in terms of a destination. Jesus, I am willing to follow you wherever you lead me so that I can get to the place where I will be settled and I will be secure and I can enjoy the fruits of my suffering for your sake. And you put in the investment up front and then there's always a return, isn't there? And that's what he's looking for. He's looking for the same thing that the apostles were looking for on the day that Christ ascended. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. The apostles are gathered around and what's the question on their lips? Lord, will you at this time, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Here we are. We've been through so much. We've been with you through thick and thin, Jesus. We were there for your ministry. We were there for your teaching. We were there for your death. We missed some of that, but we're back now. We were there. We saw your tomb, and we believe in you, and we're here. And maybe now is the time that you're going to plant the kingdom in a place that we can see It's now the time. And what's Jesus' response? Don't worry about the schedule. You keep going. Isn't that what he said to them? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That's where we are. But, but Judea is This man comes to Jesus and says, I'll go wherever you want me to go, and I wonder if that's what he's signing up for. Discipleship to the ends of the earth. Discipleship with no expiration date. Discipleship without the satisfaction of being able to sit back and enjoy the fruits of your labor and see your work done. At least not in this life. You know what it is to have that family work day in the yard, don't you? It's wonderful. And the kids are there next to you, and they're picking up sticks, and you're, you're raking leaves, you're spreading mulch. It takes you half of a day, hours and hours and hours, just to mow the yard. And you do all the weed rack- whacking around both sides of the fence, even on the neighbor's side, so they won't see it. And everything's trimmed, and everything, it's really hard, and it costs you calluses and sweat, but by 4.30, it's done. And it feels so good just to sit down, grab a glass of lemonade and sit back and look at what you've done. And Jesus says, discipleship in this life never gets to that point. That's what he's saying. Discipleship in this life actually is more like a week after that workday, Because the grass has already grown back, hasn't it? And your dog has gone through and he's taken half of your mulch and he's tossed it on the patio. And you're thinking, I swear, if I find one more chipmunk hole, I'm getting a pet bobcat. That's what it feels like to be a disciple in this life. Never ending work to do. Discipleship is about going and pressing and running and fighting. We are always struggling against the We are always proclaiming the gospel to those who haven't heard. We are always praying for strength to keep walking by the Spirit with Jesus. Following Jesus is always an uphill climb. And Jesus wants this man, and he wants you, to know that following him means forgetting the idea that in this life, you can find a comfortable destination from which to admire. There is a destination, folks. We believe that. There is a Sabbath rest that the Lord is preparing for all of those who are his, but it's not yet. And in this life, we never get there. And so we need to abandon the idea that discipleship is someday, at some point, going to be pretty comfortable. We can look back and say, that was hard, but I'm glad it's done. And I'll just just wait until the rest is accomplished. We never get there. And so disciples need to be willing to abandon comfort. We need to be willing to suffer rejection. And third, we need to be willing to reorder our priorities. We need to be willing to reorder our priorities. Take a look at verse 15. The man who's been conscripted. He's been, he's been called. There is this direct command upon his life. Christ has laid claim to this man. Follow me, he says. And he raises what seems to us to be a very reasonable, rational objection. Yes, but. First, let me go home and bury my father. Now, there are two ways of understanding, at least two ways of understanding his request. One way is to think that it's all just what we see on the surface here, that his father is dead. Perhaps has just died. He's just received word that his father has died. And he's saying, yes, I, I do, I have, have every intention of following Jesus, of being a disciple, of going wherever you want me to go, even to the ends of the earth, I'm okay with that, but I've got this duty that I have to do first. In fact, burying a parent was the greatest duty that a Jew could fulfill in these days. The Pharisees taught that if you had a dead at home waiting to be buried, that that, that absolves you from any other religious duties that you might have. You didn't have to read the Torah, you didn't have to practice the Sabbath if you were a priest, except for the high priest, you didn't even have to serve in the temple. Everything else was secondary to burying your father or your mother. And it could be that this man legitimately wants to follow Christ, but he has a need that stands in his way, and he's saying, let me go fulfill the final obligation of my sonship. But then again, a funeral for your parents was so important in these days. So important, there's almost no chance that if his father was actually dead, he would be there talking to Jesus. Jairus came when his daughter was on the point of death. And he came only because he thought maybe Jesus could do something about it. But once uh, the daughter had died, the, the people came and they said, don't bother him anymore. You've got something to do at home, Jairus. Leave Jesus alone. You come back. The Jews would bury their dead bodies within 24 hours in this culture. It was hot. There were logistics to consider. And so if this man's father had actually died, he would not have been talking to Jesus. Far better to think that what he's saying is not that his father is dead, but that he's just very old. And that's a legitimate need too, isn't it? His father is in the twilight years of his life, and he reasons that if nobody else will care for him, he's the only one who can. And the discipleship can wait maybe a few more weeks, maybe a few more months, maybe a few more years, until his work of mercy has been completed, and then he can come and follow Christ. If that's the case, we want to say, yeah, you you actually have a pretty good argument, don't you? Scripture unequivocally tells us that we ought to honor our father and our mother. In the New Testament, Paul writes to Timothy, he says that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and he is worse than an unbeliever. And so we don't want to jesus is saying here but we need to get the weight of what jesus is telling this man however we slice it if his father is dead or if his father is just very old and frail however we slice it we at least have to say that when jesus calls a disciple a man or a woman or a boy or a girl when he calls a disciple to follow him there is absolutely nothing absolutely nothing that can give us a legitimate excuse refusing that call to discipleship. That's what this man wants. He wants an excuse. He wants some reason to rationalize why he does not need to follow Jesus now. Notice that word. Let me go first. He's got his priorities all wrong, doesn't he? Let me go first and do this thing. I'll come back later, but let me go first. Let me put discipleship in the passenger seat while I decide what my life ought to be. This is a unique situation. I would say for the vast majority of us, we will be called upon to care for our parents as a, a means of being discipled, as a demonstration of our discipleship, rather than being called away from them. This is the way that it normally happens. This is a good thing to do, and Christian disciples are called to care and to give to their aging parents. But the point of Jesus' response is clear. There is nothing in the dying world that ought to keep us from following Jesus. It doesn't matter how noble, how well-intentioned our sense of duty might be to our family or to our nation or to being a good citizen in the world. It doesn't matter. All those things that we can lift up, that we can put in the place of, well, I, I can't be a disciple yet because I have to do this thing. There is nothing that ought to take priority over following Jesus. And if even those callings stand in the way of following Christ, what discipleship is all about. Jesus is calling his disciples to be willing to reorder their priorities. Now I know that there are some in the discipleship is. Their parents have answered the call. have at least for a time been taken away from them. That you did not want them to go, and you know what it is to answer this call. Maybe there are some young people here who are not yet aware that maybe the Lord is preparing you. Maybe he's gifting you. Maybe he's providing He's going to call you to follow him to some malaria-filled country where people have never heard the name of Jesus. And maybe you'll be called upon to leave your family and to make that decision, what is my priority? Maybe there are some who will be called as this man was called. I have to choose between caring for your family and carrying the gospel. And if that call comes to you, what will you say? How will you reason through it? It's a godly duty to care for your family. It's a good thing. It's a a discipleship thing. In most cases, to care for those who are near you, to deal with your priorities in this life. Yet we have to realize that Jesus is calling us to put the gospel first, to put following him first ahead of anything else in our life that we're called to be willing to reorder our priorities. Now lastly, Jesus is calling his disciples To fix their focus. Verse 61 There's another man who volunteers, isn't there? In fact, another man who who seems like he has something to do first before he can follow somebody else with a legitimate reason why he can't follow Jesus now. I'll be there in a minute, Jesus. Let me let me go back, let me kiss the kids on the forehead. Let me tell my wife I'm not going to be home for dinner. Let me set my affairs in order. Isn't that reasonable? Even Elisha got to do this. Elijah came and said, follow me. And Elisha said, well, let me, let me have a feast first. Let me go back and tell my that I love them. Let me go back and break ties with my former life, and then I'll be there. And he did. He took the plow that he was working, and he broke it, and he, and he took the oxen that he was using, and he slaughtered them, and he made a complete break with his former life. But the problem is that that's not what this man wants to do, is it? He says he wants to go back and say farewell, but he doesn't want to say farewell in order to walk away. He wants to say farewell in order to say, maybe I'll see you soon. I've got to keep my options open. I don't want to burn too many bridges. And Jesus reveals that his disciples warning that Jesus gives him, verse 62. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, today on, on those big out there where everything is flat for miles and miles, on those big farms, all of the, the plows and all of the tractors and all the combines are, are GPS-guided. And so the farmer can get in the cab and he can plug in the coordinates and the satellites do their work and the computers do their work and they keep every row perfectly straight, and they maximize the field for optimal agricultural output. That's not how it happened in Jesus' day. In the rocky hills of the Judean wilderness, out in the countryside where they grow on the slopes, and all you had, maybe two oxen, probably just one, and a wooden plow, and you would hitch your plow to your ox, And you would grunt your way through a stony field. And the number one rule of plowing and farming was keep looking forward. Find a point fixed on the horizon and keep looking there as you're plowing the field. Because if you don't, if you begin to look backwards as you're trying to go forward, you'll find that your rows have more curve than a Sandy Koufax curveball. And if you don't know who Sandy Koufax is, Google him like I did. But that's what he's saying. He's saying what you need to do if you're going to put your hand to the plow is break with your former life. You need to be willing to fix your focus on the one you are following and the way that he is leading you. You need to be willing to go with him and to break with your former life. I thought about titling this last point, we need to be willing to sever our relationships. I suppose it works. You see, the problem is that most, of, uh, most often the, the relationships that we think of are, are not the ones that we need to be thinking of. Because here's a man who, uh, who says he wants to go back and say farewell to those who are at his home. That's okay. All right, It's okay to have an affinity for your family and to care for those who are at home. But there are some other relationships we need to be willing to get rid of in order to follow Jesus, in order to fix our focus on him and the distractions of the world. Sometimes the relationships we need to break off are the, the ones that ought to have been gotten rid of a long time ago. That boyfriend, that he's so cute, and he's pretty nice. And you wonder, I could keep that relationship, I could keep that fling, and I could have my faith at the same time, even though trying to lead me in opposite directions. And sometimes young people, especially when they're, when they're pressed into a situation, you know, I've been, I've been single longer than I really want to be. Maybe I can just compromise. Maybe I can look backwards just a little bit. And Jesus says, no, you need to keep looking forward. You need to keep pressing. You need to keep looking to him and promising uh, and waiting upon his promises. I think far more often the relationships we need to get rid of to fix our focus on Jesus or the relationships with our past sin. These are the things that haunt us, aren't they? Those things that we can still remember and those, those secret sins that we hide just deeply enough that nobody else can see them, but not so deeply enough that we don't take them out when we're all by ourselves and remember and savor the memory of wasn't it wonderful when we did this you find yourself going back to those things and thinking about those places and remembering what you saw and remembering the rush of excitement that that sin brought you. Let's not be uh, deceiving ourselves this morning. Sin is exciting often. That's why we get hooked, because we enjoy it. I think Jesus would tell us today that if that's what we're doing, if we're trying to follow him by saying, maybe I'll, I'll hold on to this little thing over here. Maybe I can follow Jesus while I'm looking behind me. J.C. Ryle told us that the things that we look back to are the things that we want to return to. And Jesus said, the one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And So today, Jesus is calling us to fix our focus, to set our eyes on him, to walk with Jesus as he teaches us to carry the cross of discipleship. So folks, just like our Savior, We are called to bear the cross. We're called to be willing to suffer rejection and to abandon comfort and to reorder our priorities and to fix our focus on Christ. And when you do that, you find that we come full circle. The truth is that none of us are fit for the kingdom of God. I'm not. I know you're not. Our discipleship with the Lord is full of so much sinful self-seeking so much half-hearted holiness. We follow the Lord not like a plowman trying to plow a straight furrow, but like a mockingbird. And we flit around in a thousand different directions looking at every shiny bauble that crosses our path. And we're so easily distracted, and we are not fit for the kingdom of God. We don't have our gaze of faith fixed firmly on Christ, and that's why verse 51 tells us, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He fixed his focus. He fixed his focus upon the city that kills the prophets. He fixed his focus on the nails and the shame and the cross. He fixed his focus on your salvation so that you can know that there is not a single step he asks you to take, not a single cross he calls you to bear that he has not already walked and carried in your place. So that you would have hope of walking with him, so that you would receive the abiding presence of the Spirit who's always giving us course corrections, like the GPS in that large tractor, always pointing us back in the right direction. Nope, a little more this way, a little more toward Christ. So that the Holy Spirit would indwell believers, so that we look ourselves, look at ourselves and realize, I'm not fit for the kingdom of God. We remind ourselves again, we're reminded by the Spirit, that's right, you're not. And that's why he fixed his gaze for you. That's why he set his face like flint, to give himself as a sacrifice for sinners. Dear friends, he set his face so that you might follow him today. I pray that that's true of you and true of me as we walk together as disciples with the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord, we pray that you would make us faithful followers. Forgive us for all the ways that we have failed you and gone in our own direction and, and chosen comfort rather than to suffer rejection together with you. Oh, Lord, keep us looking to you, looking to Christ, because our life is hid with you. Keep us following, O oh, Lord, and make us faithful so that we would rejoice in your promise and your faithfulness for us, we pray in Jesus' name.